Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. The organisation 350 Australia has launched a fossil-free sponsorship pledge to encourage arts organisations, community groups and sporting groups to rule out all and any partnerships with coal, gas and oil industries. We're going to be talking about Cut All Ties, the, uh, the new pledge and campaign, with Lucy Mann, the CEO of 350 Australia. Now, if you work in the art sector at all, or if you're like me, somebody who has one foot in the art sector and one foot in the world of arts journalism, then you'd know that over recent years, there, the idea of sponsorship in the arts has been increasingly contentious. Up in Darwin, we've seen Darwin Festival and Santos, uh, a fossil fuel company, uh, Santos ending their long relationship with the festival last year after ongoing protests and concerns particularly around, for example, fracking on First Nations countries up in the NT. Over in Western Australia, we've seen uh, the Perth Fringe uh, actually come under fire from artists because they inserted a gag order clause in their artists' contracts, forbidding artists from criticising or protesting the festival's then principal sponsor, uh, the fossil fuel giant Woodside. All of this is an ongoing issue in the sector, which makes it uh, very timely that my first guest for the morning joins us on the line. Lucy Mann is the CEO of 350 Australia, 350 Australia, and joins us to talk about a new campaign, uh, the Fossil Free Sponsorship Pledge, to encourage arts organisations as well as community groups and sporting groups to rule out any and all partnerships with the fossil fuel industries. Lucy, good morning and thanks for joining us. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. So, clearly this is a fraught issue in the arts sector. Uh, Many people working in the arts would consider themselves progressive, concerned about the future of the planet, aware of the impact of human-induced climate change on the planet we're living in. Simultaneously, they often work in um, underfunded organisations that are sometimes so needy of funding that they don't necessarily interrogate the funding relationships they enter into with the the rigour that perhaps we would hope they might. Talk to us a little bit about this new campaign and what you're hoping to achieve from it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a really good point. I think in the arts there is a real need for funding and I suppose uh, what we have been seeing is that We know that arts organisations do have ethical screens and and we saw a wave of organisations ruling out tobacco sponsorship. So tobacco sponsorship used to be a really big part of the arts and sports sponsorships, uh, but then eventually that was banned. And I think what we're seeing now is increasingly there is momentum to start to treat fossil fuel companies the same way. So, you know, at 350 we'd been involved for a number of years in uh, these campaigns, some of which you've mentioned. So, you know, 350 activists were supportive with the artists who've been challenging the Fringe Festival who eventually dropped Woodside as a naming rights sponsor. And and I suppose, um, you know, we started to work with a national network of these groups and we started to see that increasingly 
actually the momentum is there and that arts organisations are starting to roll out muscle field sponsorships. So I suppose the, the purpose of this pledge is really to celebrate what's already happening but then also provide resources and a network and examples so that uh, so arts organisations who aren't sure or, or aren't sure if this is the right step, that uh, we can actually celebrate that progress and provide the resources for more and more organisations to do so. And then through that momentum, I think uh, pretty soon we're going to see fossil fuel companies treated the same way that tobacco companies are treated, uh, which, you know, we know that they should be. They're causing a huge amount of harm. They're intentionally setting out on a business model that is creating harm for our communities. So uh, that's sort of where we're trying to go with this. And I suppose the reason it's so important is because we know that these companies are trying to buy their social licence to operate. So they're trying to improve their image. Uh, they're trying to buy support from the community. And a way they can do that is to have their logo sort of all over our loved arts and sporting events and festivals. And so... Uh, we really need that to stop in order to start this transition um, away from uh, being, uh, yeah, so beholden, our politicians so beholden to the industry. I think it's a really lovely analogy the, to compare the fossil fuels industry with uh, the tobacco industry. For decades, tobacco advertising was everywhere. It was closely connected with sport and other major cultural institutions and organisations. As we became more and more aware of the long-term harm that smoking did to people and that tobacco companies knew was happening and were trying to cover up the research for, uh, as you say, they've become um, more, uh, I guess you could uh, use the phrase pariahs in terms of kind of marketing and sponsorship. And that was achieved in part through government legislation forbidding the public promotion of uh, tobacco products, etc. Now, are you hoping that in the long term, uh, both governments and arts organisations and indeed community sports groups and more will, will take similar steps to... to move themselves away from sponsorship from fossil fuels because it would feel it would seem that uh the tobacco kind of issue was achieved in part significantly because of the government actually coming on board or governments coming on board yeah absolutely so i think that's a really important part of it and i think you know what we saw with tobacco was really huge community-led campaigns and organizations uh, you know, taking steps. And, and it was really, I think, you know, we're a grassroots campaigning organisation at 350, and so the way we see it is that we have to force the government to act. And so, you know, ultimately where we're trying to get to is uh, a society where fossil fuel sponsorships and advertising is banned, where we have really clear plans to transition away from fossil fuels. Um, and the way to get there is to create this momentum from the community, from the bottom up. And so I think this is a piece of that. And... Uh, there are other really important campaigns as well. So, for example, there's a great organisation called Comms Declare. They're working on getting local government to ban fossil fuel advertising um, on their premises and, and the, the venues that they manage. And so uh, there's a whole wave of campaigns happening, and I think this is one really important piece of the puzzle. And I think if we can demonstrate um, through arts organisations and sporting clubs and festivals um, taking this stand, I think then we can demonstrate to government uh, that they are prized and then the government will act. So I think that it's all about creating that grassroots momentum to force the government to act um, around advertising, but of course also around ensuring that 
you know, large new fossil fuel basins aren't opened. Um, we tend to see that these companies like Santos and Woodside, as you mentioned, they really focus their sponsorship efforts in the places where they want to open up huge new uh, fracking or gas projects. And so um, that's something that we're aware they're trying to do. And, you know, the, it is so insidious, the link between the politics and the acceptance in the community. So you can imagine if you sponsor a large arts organisation, you can invite the local politicians along um, to come and see opening night with you. You know, we see that kind of thing a lot. So, uh, yeah, so I think it is all about creating that grassroots momentum and ultimately heading towards... Um, a total ban of advertising in the future, absolutely. In terms of this new campaign to encourage arts organisations to, uh, I guess, sign on to the fossil-free sponsorship pledge, how many arts organisations are on board so far? Yeah, so we've currently had nine organisations come on board and it's only been up for about a week, so we're pretty excited about that. Um, Rising Festival in Nam. Um, which um, I'm sure lots of listeners are planning to get along to. I know I am. Um, they've signed up, which is fantastic. And uh, we had a couple of artists at Rising Festival come out in support of that. Um, also, La Mama Theatre is another one, a few film festivals. And we're also in conversations with a lot of groups who are sort of in discussions, taking it to their board. So we've had really positive reception so far, and we're hoping that will kind of demonstrate to other organisations that it can be done and, and we're here to support as well with resources and how to do it. Talk to us about those resources and other support mechanisms that uh, you've kind of built into this campaign to help organisations not just think about the issue but commit to the issue and follow through. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have a website which uh, sort of has everything on it, including uh, it's got a database of where there are currently fossil fuel ties to organisations across a whole range of sectors and also uh, celebrating those who've signed up. And then that actually has the text of the pledge itself, which is it's really simple. Um, it's the kind of thing you could just insert straight into your fundraising policy or your ethical screen that you already have around partnerships, uh, which just is an exclusion for coal, gas and oil companies. Um, and we also have a, a resource kit. So say you work in an arts organisation or you want to approach your local organisation about taking the pledge, that has a sort of step-by-step -step guide of how to go about that and also template letters that you can send which explain a bit more of the context, why it's important and then has the information about the pledge itself. So that's all on the website and we're also here to support anyone if you like more information, um, you can email us directly, get in touch via the website, and uh, we sort of do that behind-the-scenes support work as well at 350. So that website, cutallties.350.org.au, uh, there are currently something like almost 600 fossil fuel sponsorship across the arts, sports, education and cultural sectors. Uh, you can search the website uh, just to look specifically at arts categories, for example. Uh, there is a range of major orchestras, poetry awards um, and many, many more companies. Now, in some states, I suspect it will be easier to encourage people to and organisations to sign up to take this pledge, Lucy. What about WA, for example, where the 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 relationship between the extraction industries slash fossil fuels and arts and culture seems so much more closely intertwined than perhaps any, any other state or territory in the country. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in a state like WA, you'll often see, for example, Woodside executives 
are actually on the boards of these organisations and maybe, you know, you'd have the orchestra come and perform at a Woodside AGM to open it, that sort of thing. So there are some very deep links there for sure. I think that, uh, you know, if we can sort of demonstrate that increasingly there's large, large numbers of organisations who are refusing fossil fuel sponsorships, I think it will start to have an impact ultimately on these places as well. And I think that will really come from the local artists and community members who are running those long-standing campaigns in those areas as well. And, and I also think that um, it's really important to think about, you know, the impact it can have, even if an organisation does cut ties. I think it's really valuable. You know, I've worked in nonprofits for a long time and even just having these conversations with our board, um, being approached by... Uh, your employees, by your supporters, by uh, your audience members, I think all of those conversations are ultimately contributing to the change we want to see in society, which is a total shift to our relationship around fossil fuels and really taking the urgent action we need to address the climate crisis. So I think, you know, if you, if you are in a state or have connections to organisations that do have links to fossil fuel companies, I think just starting that conversation is really, really valuable. And I think that the more we can create national momentum around this issue, you know, ultimately we will end up seeing the progress uh, in all places. I think it's inevitable. I think there's no doubt that we are going to end up looking back on fossil fuels the way we look back on tobacco and its role in sponsorships and partnerships. Uh, it's just about, I think, trying to accelerate that momentum as fast as we can. So hopefully this pledge and uh, getting involved in this is, is a way to accelerate that momentum. I'm speaking with Lucy Mann, the CEO of 350 Australia, about the Fossil Free Sponsorship Pledge, a new campaign to encourage artists and arts organisations, as well as community groups, sporting groups and others, to rule out any and all partnerships with the fossil fuel industries. Uh, Lucy, just before I let you go, the, uh, so the website for people wanting to learn more about the campaign specifically, cutallties.350.org.au. Can you just explain the name of the organisation? What's the significance of 350 as a number? Yeah, so 350 refers to 350 parts per million, which is the safe level of carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, we are now well above 400 uh, parts per million, so um, that's the origin of our name. It's all about um, staying to 1.5 degrees warming or below, and that's what we know is the safe level. Um, in order to, um, you know, minimise the most serious impact. So uh, that's where our name comes from. And if you want to help minimise the impact of the fossil fuel industries on the art sector and indeed on the planet, cutallties.350.org.au for more information about the Fossil Free Sponsorship Pledge. If you are on the board of an arts organisation or are a contributor or member or artist involved with an arts organisation who currently has sponsorship from the fossil fuel industry, go to cutallties.350.org.au and you'll find some tools to assist you in the process of uh, stepping away from that particularly unhealthy relationship. Lucy Mann, thank you so much for joining us on the program this morning. Triple R. Janet McLeod has been running a comedy room in Melbourne at Local Laughs for many years. Uh, so many, in fact, that on Monday the 19th of June, Local Laughs will be celebrating its 20th anniversary. Janet, good morning and congratulations for the impending do. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Clearly, I started when I was 10. Yeah, right. Uh, 20 years. I don't know how the time has gone by, but it has. It has. Uh, 
Yeah. Now, um, just uh, to uh, as a heads up for our listeners, uh, Janet is you're getting over a bout of bronchitis. Is that right? Oh yes, it's been quite fun. Uh, when I say it's been a productive week, it's it's not been work-wise. It's just been in my lungs, yeah. so in my bronchioles. They've been very productive. Uh, so if I have a coughing fit, which is quite likely, Richard will very professionally fade me down and play some sponsorship announcements, and then we'll come back to it because I am one thing. I am Richard. It's determined. That you certainly are, and determined, but also. Absolutely committed to comedy. Why Why do you love comedy so much that you've run Local Laughs for, for coming up to 20 years? What is it about comedy that I love? Yes, good point. Uh, I think I love hearing multiple perspectives and unique viewpoints from a, a wide swathe of people. And I find it... Uh, personally entertaining and I like to share that around I suppose and and also just looking at what the comedy scene is like and thinking I know what'll help this this person and encouraging them so I'm a big cheerleader of uh varying people as well so um it's it's been very interesting watching over the past 20 years how the comedy uh the comedy industry in Australia, well, Melbourne, Australia, and then the world has also changed and benefited, I suppose, from, you know, some of us have been, some of us have been tinkering away in the background for a while, Richard. <laughs> you certainly have. You, there are other strings to your bow, which we will come to. But take us back 20 years ago when you established Local Laughs, which for people who've not been run Monday nights at the local tap house in Carlisle Street, East St Kilda, and always offers a really kind of broad and dynamic and interesting range of contemporary comedy. Why did you set up a room particularly? Uh, was it just because you were thinking there are some really great comedians who aren't getting the regular gigs they should to hone their craft? What was going on? the only comedy room I've run because of course uh, the older Triple R listeners will go, is that Janet? She used to be on the cheese shop in the 90s, yes, uh, alongside the late great Dave Taranto. I was uh, also the door person at uh, Cheese Shop Live which was at the Prince Patrick Hotel, an iconic comedy venue from yesteryear and, uh, and so when when Dave died then I kind of took the, the mantle I suppose, picked up a baton and ran with it. So I ran some things at Prince Pat and then at another venue in Collingwood. And uh, the way the local happened was that I was running trivia night, the trivia night there on Sunday nights, which I still do after 22 years. And so the management had come along to my comedy night that I was running in this place in Collingwood and gone, oh, that's great. Can you do one at the local? And thus it began. Well, I'm glad that you've had, that it began at all because comedy rooms, by their nature, are sometimes fleeting. Um, I've seen rooms that have run for a year or two uh, at a venue on Nicholson Street, for example. There used to be one at the Builder's Arms in Fitzroy oh, yeah. back in the day. Uh, and sometimes they run for a year, two years, and then they they disappear because the promoter has got burnt out or the venue has changed management and doesn't want kind of comedy in their back room anymore. So there's a variety of reasons why comedy rooms come and go. What has been the 
What's the secret of your longevity? Well, there's been a, a couple of things. First of all, a big shout-out to the various staff and management at the local tap house for being there and for supporting. But um, the other thing is that you mentioned that uh, people get burnt out. Well, I have too, but I've been dumb enough to keep going. <laughs> past burnout stage. I wouldn't recommend this, to be honest, but uh, somehow my resilience has, has uh, kept, kept me going. And, uh, you know, when you see, you think, oh, well, look, I'm going to stop, stop feeding the birds or whatever. Uh, oh, no, but they, what about that one? That one needs something. But it's kind of like that with comedians. <laughs> I, I just go, oh, but if I stop... That person will have nowhere to perform. I'd better keep going. Because well, there are some people who only really perform at local laughs or, or they've um, honed their craft there, I suppose. Sometimes it's just circumstance. Like the, um, the late, great Stella Young. There's a great example. Uh, Stella Young, uh, who the listeners may uh, know, uh, was a great disability activist as well as comedian, used a wheelchair, and there really were, were not that many, in fact, I'm trying to think if there were any, uh, accessible comedy rooms where the access was on stage. So I built a ramp. That's pretty much it. That's what I will do. It wasn't a good ramp, but it was a ramp. Uh, admittedly, Stella would take the piss out of it uh, <laughs> in a loving fashion, but it meant that I could uh, have one of these, just one of the most amazing comedians on my stage. Now, there's a range of other comedy rooms around Melbourne uh, and uh, kind of I wanted to acknowledge places like uh, Kazraitop's Dirty Secrets, for example. Oh, yes. Uh, Spleen, Kent Street, um, uh, Comedy Republic, which is a dedicated comedy venue, uh, not just one night a week at a, at a venue that does other things uh, the year round. But there is a very... It feels uh, quite a collegiate atmosphere around the local laughs at the local tap house, which I presume is partially because of your curation. Um, do you have a, an official no-dickheads policy in the same way that, say, the Meredith Music Festival does? i got to say, yes. Uh, <laughs> I want people to, who, uh, you know, play well with others. So my programming style, sometimes I'll, I'll have something in my mind and I will program around that. I won't express the theme but I know that there's a theme or other times I want this comedian to meet this comedian like uh, there's somebody's comedy hero and so I'll put them on the same bill so that they get a bit of a thrill out of it so I put lineups together like uh, somebody might put together a patchwork quilt I just go oh that piece will go really well there how fantastic this is going to be great uh, so I suppose that's it. Yeah, I, I do like things to be friendly with the audience as well as the performers. Because no. that's the thing about local laughs is the stage is only about, what is it, 15, 20 centimetres high. So the difference between audience and performer is it's, it's not that great. It's not that much. It's uh, a quite a uh, friendly, affable, intimate room. As a, as a result. Now, Janet, how has comedy changed over the 20 years that you've been running Local Laughs? Oh, let's see. It has changed. It's not necessarily by accident as well, I just want to point out. 
because of uh, you know, people tinkering away in the background. Well, you look at, for example, Melbourne International Comedy Festival and the, the, the number of development programs that they yeah. run throughout the year. Well, those development programs are great. You then have to have people to also keep those comics in the mix. So I um, so, so some of the things I love doing, I love um, uh, getting the uh, uh, people from class clowns. So because of, if you if you the venue that you're using has a particular type of license, it means that you can have. Um, kids who are under age but as long as they got their parents with them so that's what local laughs has so i'll have 14 year old comedians sometimes um uh people from deadly funny from rural comedy it's good to keep them in the comedy room mix i suppose and and just encourage people um one of the things that i set out to do with local laughs is that uh, women were hugely underrepresented in a lot of comedy room lineups uh, back back when I started, certainly in and certainly in the through through the 90s into the early 2000s, and so I made it a rule that there definitely had to be bare minimum one woman on a lineup. Like, and this sounds like you know, in today's terms, you'd go, oh, just one. But uh, bearing in mind that there were uh, fewer female comics and there was also a, just a, a tendency for other rooms just to be, you know, the sausage fest, Richard. And so in the 20 years, so we're looking at, oh, you know, close to a 1,000 shows, I suppose, then there's only been 19 shows where there was no woman on stage, and that's only because of last-minute pullouts. But I've always been the voiceover person. So it represents less than 0.02% of shows that had no female presence on stage, uh, which was kind of a demonstration, I suppose, to other comedy rooms who would go, oh, we'd have women on, but there's not that many, and blah, blah, oh, it could be, you know, really, oh, it's hard. And I'd go, oh, well, here's my statistic. And so it's just a, a way to prove that this is possible. You just have to do it. And so as a result, I've, I've seen things become stronger and stronger and stronger. So now we have a greater diversity of voices on stage. We've got women, we've got non-binary comedians, we've got trans comedians, uh, we've got comedians who are starting to come through who have got a, a wide range of, uh, of, of backgrounds. It's really getting a lot more interesting, Richard, I've got to say. I'm delighted to hear it. Janet, as a final question for you, given that Monday the 19th of June is the 20th anniversary of your comedy room, Local Laughs, at the local tap house, 184 Carlisle Street, East St Kilda, and you can go to thelocal.com.au for details. Oh, what... I'd say go to try booking, actually. Ah, well, I was kind of... Yes, that's where you would actually book tickets to go and yes. see the night. But who's on? Who's on the bill on the Monday the 19th, this special 20th birthday? Okay, I will say, everybody, get your fingers ready to click because get to try booking or get to the Facebook... Yes, we've got a Facebook page too, Richard, because we're still old-fashioned, uh, of local laughs. And these tickets are not going to last long because there's only 40 tickets available at the moment. We have got Josh Earle, Sammy J, Geraldine Hickey, Tom Ballard, Harley Breen, Claire Hooper... Ivana Restigieta, uh, uh, and and more to be added. 
So that's it's basically a gala. It sounds like a gala. That's a great lineup of some comedians I know and love and have shrieked with mirth at over the years. Oh my god! And and can I point out, Geraldine Hickey was our very first comedian that we ever had on uh, in two thousand and three. And so she's been on most of the birthday shows. So she's back. She's back. So uh, to book for Local Laughs' 20th birthday show on the 19th of June, go just Google try booking Local Laughs and mm-hmm. uh, it will take you straight to the irrelevant webpage uh, where you can book to see and uh, get out and see some comedy. Comedy is not just for the comedy festival, it's for all year round. Absolutely. Thank you very much for saying that, Richard. My pleasure. Uh, Janet McLeod, thank you so much for joining us and uh, happy birthday for a couple of weeks' time. Oh, thank you. Come along, everybody. You're probably aware that Rising, Melbourne's new winter festival, is just around the corner. Uh, Its first iteration or two slightly impeded by the pandemic. Last year finally got into full swing and it returns this year from the 7th until the 18th of June. There's a remarkable range of works happening, uh, some of which are... Perhaps, what's a good way to put this? Reinterpreting familiar venues and changing the way that uh, we move through familiar places. Uh, Sonic Eclipse uh, is presented by Speak Percussion at the Melbourne Recital Centre and will be doing exactly that. Instead of just, I don't know, sitting in your seat in the the, the recital centre listening to a performance, uh, I get the feeling it's making use of a range of spaces within the building. Uh, so presented by Speak Percussion, I'm joined by Eugene Ugetti, who is the co-artistic director of Speak Percussion, together with uh, composer Eki Veltheim. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Uh, Eugene, let's start with you. Kind of what's the elevator pitch for, for this show? How did you approach the rising team? So the project is really about thinking about art music as a an immersive spatial experience and and sonic eclipse is essentially four commissioned australian works that come together to explore ways in which music can move activate spaces and immerse the audience in this um uh, i guess uh, highly architectural and highly um, visceral experience of sound immerse in what sense so because if you go and see a gig for example kind of uh whether it's i don't know uh in a, a a chamber quartet in a small salon, for example, or a big stadium rock show with walls of noise. You are immersed to a degree, but it's a fairly static experience. Yeah, so, I mean, 95% of the time when we think about how we consume music, we, we do it through a kind of stereo image. So we've, you know, we put a pair of headphones on, we're hearing the left and right signal, or we go to a concert and we're usually hearing a band on stage coming out of a kind of stereo PA. This project th- puts all of that aside and starts to think about the, the possibility of sound coming from any part of the space. Now, that means, yes, it can be in front of you, behind you, and either side of you, like like a, in the cinema. But more than that, we can have sound coming from other spaces. So it might be that you hear these more distant and uh, quieter sounds from a greater distance. And then we have sounds that can be moving whilst spatialized as well so each of the works in their own peculiar ways deals with this idea 
in its own way. And it means that over the course of the work, aside from experiencing all of the kind of beautiful sounds and musical forms that we would normally expect, um, we're also really engaging with space and spatial sound ideas as well. Icky, what was the pitch to you uh, in terms of uh, composing a work for this performance? Well, actually, the the piece that... that um Speak is performing, uh, which is called the Sacred Table of Saturn. Um, it's a it's part of a, a larger modular um, uh, piece of music, which has multiple parts, which were all composed for different ensembles and different contexts. With this idea that you could also put them together um, if um, budgets and schedules allow one day. Um, so, I mean, I'm I'm um, very happy that that Speak is actually giving the world premiere of the of the first piece. Um, uh, from this suite. Um, so basically, yeah, the the, the pitch um, with Eugene always is to to anyone he's working with is, what are your ideas? How can we make them, you know, both in terms of content and context, interesting for for people to experience? Um, so you know, that's that's the great thing about working with Eugene and, and Speak is that 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 there's always a kind of very collaborative idea about how we make. Um, you know, a piece of music or a piece of sound um, into something that can be experienced in, in a really kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say new or novel, but in a, in a way that is that somehow reveals more about um, listening than just this kind of standard stereo image that, that Eugene was talking about. The, the impact of percussion has been explored in a range of ways. Uh, the, one of the, the, the recent examples that springs to mind for me, for example, is the Stephanie Lake Company's work manifesto with, what, ten drummers arrayed on stage. And watching that and experiencing that work, the, the kind of the percussive power of it, the variety of it, Initially, when that began, I was thinking, okay, after about 20 minutes, just having nothing but drums could get a bit monotonous. And then, of course, the musical palette changes, the musical style changes. It reminded me of the the versatility of percussion as uh, an art and an element in its own musical right. It's not just the backing for a band, for example. It's a great point that you make, Richard. Percussion is an indefinite instrumentation. So by that I mean any physical object, including planets, uh, including non-solid forms, can be a percussion instrument. So from that point of view, it's limitless. But beyond that, it's also one of the most accessible instrumental practices. So meaning, of course, we have these artists who have dedicated their lives to playing percussion, but we've also got the possibility of you know, when we think about children's musical instruments, many of them are percussion instruments, shakers, rattles, toy xylophones and so on. So people from an extraordinary breadth of backgrounds can access percussion and also access it in a way that's not only meaningful but, but very beautiful artistically. Does that access then also mean that there is something uh, more accessible to percussion Cussive music generally, that anybody who as a child has, I don't know, um, uh, used a, an empty ice cream container as a drum, for example, they have a way into experiencing contemporary percussive music that may not necessarily be so accessible with other art forms. I think so. I think so. I mean, it, it, what it allows us to do, and this is what I'm most proud of, is it allows us to work with ideas that are highly accessible really push the envelope musically. So it allows us to do very experimental things musically, but but in the context of an idea that most people can easily 
grapple with. Um, and, and one of the things I guess that we're most known for is our work in this kind of post-instrumental practice space where we're actually working with things that aren't considered musical instruments. We're working with designed objects or, or, or found objects that suddenly in the hands of a professional become these elaborate musical instruments. Now, you mentioned that even planets can be percussive and you glanced at Eki. Eki, your piece that will be performed as part of Sonic Eclipse, uh, the Sacred Table of Saturn, this is referencing the music of the spheres. Yeah, you know, in a, um, in a way it is. Basically, the, the sort of the larger um, modular work out of the, which is this is one part, is, is called, um, you know, it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but it's called the Divine Order of Celestial Numbers. And that basically, both that title and the titles of, of each of the movements, the sacred tables of, of each of the planets and the sun, uh, they come from the writings of um, someone called um, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettesheim, who was a contemporary of, um, of Copernicus at the turn of the, the 15th and the 16th centuries. So um, I kind of like the idea of... Like, so Agrippa was, was a mystic, a polymath, um, astrologist, um, astronomy, you know, in 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 different ways, and I kind of like the idea that that um, you know at that time, astronomy and astrology hadn't quite in the Western world sort of parted ways. So there was there was still this idea um, that that there is a kind of there is a magical potency to astronomical objects, um, which you know, uh, you know, modern science sees that in a different way. But you know, I, I was kind of um, drawn to all the kind of um, basically the writings and also specifically the, the sort of magical squares that, that Agrippa um, delineated in, in his work, um, which are older than Agrippa himself. Like they've been, they've been known in kind of mystical and astronomical and astrological circles uh, before him. But basically they're number squares, which, which can easily then be translated into, into musical material um, and, and have, the, have a kind of a charm about them. Um, so that, that, that was kind of, one inspiration and the other inspiration is a much more kind of um you know acknowledged scientific phenomenon called the schumann uh, frequencies or resonances which has nothing to do with robert schumann the composer but but rather a, uh, a scientist from the 20th century so these these were um observed as the kind of natural fundamental frequencies of of earth's ionosphere which are uh, resonated whenever a lightning strikes so they're they're um, infrasonic, you know. They're they're below our, our hearing, but of course, you know, you you can extrapolate from those those frequencies and create uh, various kinds of chords and textures. Um, you know, once you once you double them and and um, and make you know bring them up to the audible um, kind of spectrum. So there's also so you know we've observed those frequencies which are have been kind of called um, the natural resonances of the earth. You know, um, you know, one can take that as, as as one wants. Again, you know, there's kind of a the, the mystics around have have incorporated them into kind of meditation practices and things like that. Um, but also, there's been um, speculation that that other planets will have their own kind of um, natural frequencies and resonances um, in their own um, atmospheres. So I guess I've kind of taken, you know, there's there's certain formulas that you can you can um, extrapolate the Earth's um, Schumann frequencies from in terms of the Earth's size. So I've sort of taken that as a basis and tried to imagine 
what those frequencies would be on other planets. So they become kind of the fundamental of each of, of the planets and the sun in my pieces. Um, and then, you know, using Agrippa's um, sort of various uh, magical squares and other, other um, ideas, I've kind of created these quite textural pieces that are, that, you know, especially Saturn is a, is a very meditative. It's like a 45-minute meditation on three tam-tams um, and a tape part, um, which kind of creates this quite a occluded centre of this, this program. We, you know, we've been talking with Eugene about how it almost is like a literal eclipse in the middle of, of this larger program, which, which is a very kind of, you know, a space of reflection, I guess, and contemplation. Well, I'm glad you're not bringing an actual planet or lightning <laughs> strikes into uh, Melbourne Recital Centre. The, uh, the weight of Saturn would probably cause all of Melbourne to collapse into a black hole or something. Uh, but you mentioned a tam-tam. For people who aren't familiar with that as an instrument, tell us a little more. Maybe Eugene can explain. Sure. Yeah, so a tam-tam is essentially a, a very large gong. Um, so came out of China, I, I don't know how many thousands of years ago, but essentially they're these big uh, resonant metal objects that have no defined pitch. So you could almost hear any sound within that resonance of a big big tam-tam or gong. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of, uh, I guess, resonance, with kind of the... The acoustics of uh, Melbourne Recital Centre are fascinating, but you're not just going to be using the uh, the actual hall, the central hall that people will be familiar with. You've been to, been to gigs there, are you? You're using other parts of the building. No, that's right. Yeah, so the performance will already have begun when the audience enter the space. When I mean when I say space, I mean literally the foyer of the the building. There'll be music happening, live performance, and across all of the foyer spaces, which I. I consider there to be four, but technically there are three. There'll be live musicians moving and performing. So your experience of getting into the building and to your seat becomes a journey, um, both sonic and physical. Um, but then once once the performers are in the space, we've got uh, 13 satellite podiums around the space, so both in front and beside, including then performers up in the circle area surrounding the the. The, the circle space. So you, you're literally surrounded by musicians. Sometimes they're static and very often they're in places that you can't see as well. Looking at some of the uh, other composers whose work uh, is being presented and the musicians they're working with, uh, the piece by Thomas Meadowcroft, uh, over 50 performers involved, I understand. Uh, and uh, I read something about it being what, kind of uh, marching music that is not military. Yeah, so this started as a Thomas's piece is called March Static, and it started as a um, a goal of mine, which was to kind of firstly to inc- to uh, think about the marching form as an art music, um, basically to 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 reclaim the march for artistic purposes, and I guess first and foremost it was about demilitarizing the march, but then thinking about all the other types of marches, ways in which we form that um, could be an, a, an interesting platform for music to, to absorb. So this work is, is anti-military in the sense um, that it's not this kind of strict, rigid pulse that has um, traditional music um, attached to it. And it allows us to um, use that form for sort of creative and artistic purposes. In terms of the the ability to present work like this, Eki, how, how valuable, how important is it for you as a composer to know that you don't just have the support and the backing of speak percussion but of rising as an event as well? Yeah, it's vital, of course. 
yeah, no, no doubt about it. Um, festivals bring um, people together in ways that, that um, single individuals would find impossible. I mean, Speak Percussion, of course, has a, has a long track record of, of creating its own projects and, and bringing people together. But, but I think festivals do, and Rising Festival, of course, specifically in Melbourne, um, has the kind of means and ha- can create the interest to, to basically just communicate to a, a far wider audience. And I think at, at festivals, people are more adventurous than they might be. Um, so it's not just about communication, but it's, it's also about sort of taking a punt and going, well, this, these people look like they could be interesting. Um, it's not the kind of thing that I've seen before or heard before. But you go because it's a festival, and and you know it sort of has the um, imprimatur of of that festival to go. You know we trust these people to to create a show. You as an audience member should as well. And I'm guessing there's also then the added uh, bonus that other festival directors will be looking at the program, possibly even coming to the shows, uh, and perhaps there's then the chance for an event like Sonic Eclipse to then have a second life at other festivals elsewhere. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, on, on the one hand, it's a part of the kind of um, the economic machinations of the arts, I guess, these large-scale festivals, which um, which are really important in terms of putting on ambitious work. I think that's what Rising and a lot of these major um, capital city-based festivals do. They can, they can commission larger works, they can take bigger risks on projects that... Um, might cost more but need a larger audience to kind of offset that cost um and you're absolutely right it's big enough in fact this time we've got the australian performing arts market that's gathering around rising festival which is bringing not only australian curators but curators from around the globe hundreds of them are coming to melbourne to see work um and yeah there's a chance they'll they'll be listening to sonic eclipse and and interested to have follow-up conversations now we've Obviously, we've talked about Ecky's work. We've talked about uh, Thomas Meadowcroft's work. There are two other composers whose work is presented. We should acknowledge them as well. Absolutely, yeah. They do lump together nicely because they're both percussion 12 tets. And essentially, these are pieces for 12 percussionists, surprise, surprise, surrounding the audience on their own um, in their own spaces. So both works are quite contrasting. One is a little bit more kind of classical in its thinking it's a purely acoustic work that uses a lot of relatively traditional instruments and the other one is much more of this kind of um um i guess delicate textual new music type of language which um, involves each player with their own loudspeaker so it's sort of 12 individual speakers and 12 very very tightly tuned um percussion parts that surround the audience Sonic Eclipse is happening at the Melbourne Recital Centre as part of Rising on Thursday the 15th of June at 8pm. Tickets are $50 to $60 plus a transaction fee. Uh, You can book by going to the Rising website, rising.melbourne. The festival runs from the 7th to the 18th of June. Uh, As Eki said, uh, there's a real, uh, I think, encouragement when Rising is on to explore and be adventurous with the, the, the cultural uh, events you attend. I know certainly 
for any major festival, I'm always going, oh, normally I wouldn't go and see, I don't know, a six-hour durational performance played in somebody's bathroom, but it's a festival. Why not? So uh, do dive in. So Sonic Eclipse, Thursday the 15th of June, 8pm at Melbourne Recital Centre, which, if you've not been before, is located at 31 Sturt Street, South Bank, just around the corner from NGV International. You can find out more about Speak Percussion, who are presenting this event at speakpercussion.com. And as I said, you can book for Sonic Eclipse by going to the Rising website, rising.melbourne. Eugene and Eki, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 